0: Listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello ladies and gentlemen from all around the world. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Top Music Guitar Podcast. I've got a really special guest to help us kick off the very first one, and that's my good friend all the way over from England, Daryl Powers. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Hey Michael, hey Dan. Good, thank you. So um, I met Daryl, I guess maybe five or six years ago at an international guitar teaching event, and he's been a good friend ever since. He's always got his finger on the pulse of modern guitar education techniques, and he's been an inspiration to my teaching, has come up with some fantastic ideas. He's the owner of the Guitar Tuition East London School, and he's doing some amazing things with his students over there. So, Daryl, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Michael. Thank you.
0: So, can you give us a brief overview of your story so far and your journey from transitioning as a guitar player in the local London scene playing in bands to being a studio owner with a thriving music school?
1: So, I moved to London to be in a band when I was 20 years old. And, you know, we got a a house together. I'd kind of, i have been a teacher before I moved to London at someone else's school. And I'd I'd end up kind of doing a lot more teaching there than I expected at that time when I was like 18, I was just kind of thrown into lessons and teaching. And I was like, oh, wow, I can, I can kind of do this anyway, move to London, going to make it with the band because, you know, it's London and that's where everyone goes to make it. It's like London, LA, you know, those kind of places. But what I discovered when I got to London is you have to pay rent and that's expensive and so i got a job and i found i ended up basically in london the hours that you work are so insane that it was almost impossible to do any music like i couldn't i barely had time to keep up with the material for a gig let alone do any practice and so my playing just started going backwards and i started getting worse and i ended up i remember i was sat there one day, and I, I was basically, I sold furniture, was the last job I had before I started teaching again. I had a couple of jobs on the here, which are pretty crazy. Maybe that's a story for another time. But I sold furniture and I was sat there on the phones thinking, I just don't want to do this anymore. It was like 8am till 10pm. And it was during the really busy, busy time of year where everyone moves into London. It's like this furniture company where everyone's going to move around. And it's their, their promise was next day furniture, right? It was so whatever someone made an order, it was like, oh, it has to be done. So you just end up staying really, really late. And there was no chance for any practice or any gigging. And I was just like, right, I'm handing my notice in and I don't have a clue how I'm going to make any money. And so I quit and I had like, I was basically, it'd been like a, a year since I've been in London, I think. And I I had, Three thousand pounds saved, and I was like, "Oh, this would be fine." I'm gonna, and I didn't know what I was gonna do. I was just like, I knew I wanted to do music, and so I was like, "Well, I'll spend. I'm gonna figure this out." So I, I <laughs> spent six months basically using that thousand pounds, that three thousand pounds, to uh, watch TV and take part in all sorts of things that didn't make me any money, which were like, uh, I, I was in music videos. And, but I had a great, I was playing in bands again. I was, I was playing for some kind of up, I would say up and coming uh, artists at the time. I was like actually being a musician for the first time in ages. I was making some money from it, but it was nowhere near like what I actually needed to pay any rent. It was like just keeping me afloat. And it wasn't until I was about two grand in debt that I was really like, wow, now this is make or break. It's either move in with mum and dad or, um, like, go back home, which you know, I feel uh, grateful that I had that opportunity, but that really wasn't an option. That was never going to happen. Or it was, okay, I really need to make something of this. And I'd already been teaching a bit at this point, but I decided that I was going to kind of go all in. And it was something I was already good at. Like, I was, I think I was already a better teacher than I was. A session musician or guitar player in bands. And the other thing is, there's more of a market for people teaching than there was for session musicians. Like for people being paid as a session musician, there's a lot of competition. It's less people, there's more people who want to take and learn guitar. And so I started teaching more guitar and I started kind of falling in love with the guitar teaching and what the, it allowed me to do. And I really love teaching. On my first experience, both my parents were teachers at different points in their lives. My mom was a teacher for like 40, 50. 50 years, something like that. And then my dad was a teacher later in life. And I never wanted to be a teacher because I saw them working in schools, but I really loved the process of helping people and educating people. And so it just, it all fit for me. Like I really, I was helping people have breakthroughs that I hadn't kind of ever. It's just so like, Rewarding, like gigging's rewarding because you get the thirty minutes on stage after lots of traveling back and forth, and that's cool. But teaching can be rewarding. Like for me, every hour that I'm working with someone and they're having a breakthrough or they're doing the hard work and they're kind of seeing the process go through, and that's great. Like I, I really, I think it was just going, oh, this is a cool thing that I can do, and I, I really kind of fell in love with teaching, the thing I said I never wanted to do or be. So that's kind of my story.
0: Oh, it's amazing how it happens. And I think it's really great that you had that, like, you know, make or break point where you ha- you just really weren't liking the day job that you had. And a lot of teachers get stuck at that in the security of it. And that's where their playing goes or, you know, they they fall out of a teaching and, and just stick with a job that builds that income. So was there anything particular that helped you overcome that, that like taking that plunge and, and becoming a teacher as opposed to or quitting a job so you could go on to become a teacher and figure it out?
1: Yeah. So quitting the job originally, I mean, that was, that was a real leap of faith, already going for it. And then I had a lot of experience from seeing being involved in someone else's business, I have to say, that was in that industry. So having seen what it was like to be inside someone else's business, there's stuff that I still do today that I learned back when I was 18 or 19 from... Just being involved in someone else's service-based business and music school. And so I'm really grateful to that kind of time. And then I had coaching too when I I left, when I basically, when I was already in debt, I was like, right, I'm gonna get some coaching. (laughs) I'm gonna spend some more money. Um, but I needed coaching at that point to to get help with how to actually understand business at the same time. And I think that really helped me and I think also I'd seen from being in someone else's business before that, like to start a business, you had to and I had to invest in myself. Like I saw that, oh, you know, to make money, I had to kind of spend money. It was maybe not the best how I would think about it now, but it's kind of how I thought about it then. I was like, oh well, you have to like you have to speculate to accumulate. You have to do things. So I was like, okay, well, it was a bit of a pun, and I got uh, a bit lucky, and the the stuff that uh, I was doing uh, worked, and so it started connecting dots, and it. It took a long time for everything to really come together in the way that we have now. I mean, we're talking eight, eight years ago now. But yeah, I think having some previous experience... And I'd done lots of sales jobs before too. They were selling furniture or other things. But I think having a bit of a sales background, having a bit of a involvement in someone else's business and kind of seeing how another music school looked or having experience teaching other people's clients and seeing the mistakes that other people make gave me confidence that I could do this. Like I had no questions around could I teach guitar. Like that was never even a a question mark for me. And I had no questions around could I help customers. And then having some coaching for some of the business side things in terms of like how the marketing works and stuff like that. That the three together I think really enabled me to get things to click and and start acquiring and keeping lovely students.
0: Yeah. I always say to people like, you know, musicians are renowned as putting 10,000 hours into getting their instrument up to scratch and learning all these amazing skills and, and teachers will then invest another, couple of thousand hours into becoming good teachers, but they never invest like, you know, $30 in a weekend in a, a guide to personal finances or marketing or how to become you know better business people. So would you say that's something investing into the business training, the marketing that's gave you kind of like that edge over the average guitar teacher in your area?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think for sure. I think it, it's actually, funnily enough, it's the same way that I approached when I was playing as a gigging musician too. It's like I knew... <laughs> I knew that I was never kind of go go back. I didn't. I, st- I didn't start playing guitar till I was fifteen. I played other instruments when I was a kid, but I didn't start playing guitar till I was fifteen. And I like I felt like with the guitar, I knew within like six months that this is what I wanted to do. I want. Like, <laughs> I remember trying to convince my parents to let me quit school and go straight to study music at college, and they were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, <laughs> let's slow down here," and they didn't let me do that. Uh, they they suggested that I kind of take a music course at my school, which was fine. And I think probably in hindsight was the right idea, but uh, I was really obsessed with this instrument, but I knew that if I wanted to be a musician or a guitar player, I was never going to be the best at that time. Like it would take a long time for me to be the best player. I mean, sorry, I could be the Something be- better at other things, but I was never the best player. But what I saw was like, whenever I worked with musicians, is I could just be the like if I could be the most organised, <laughs> the nicest guy in the room, the most uh, prepared with the songs and the material, and kind of knowing ev- everything. If I practice lots and I took everything a bit more seriously than everyone else, I would get more gigs. And and I became like I got gigs that I just should never have ended up getting. Like looking back, like I really. <laughs> now, now I'm quite a good guitar player. Like I I really think I back myself as a player a lot more than back then. But then I I was a kid who really, I did not play very well, but I would learn songs really, really well. And I, I would turn up to these, um, gigs for musicians where I remember this, uh, this lovely girl who's, um, gone on to do really well. What got me the gig was I was the only Guitar players. It's like she'd auditioned all these guitar players who were like really good guitar players, and she was um, from a music union. But what they'd all done was gone and listened to her songs, kind of had taken chord charts down, and then they'd completely changed her songs. I was the only person who turned up having done both. I had my versions, and then I'd learned, wrote exactly all of the guitar parts from her thing. And she was just like, "Oh, it's you," because you learned all the songs perfectly. And I was like, "Yeah, of course. Well, I, why would I assume that I can do it better than the artist?" I think I took that same approach to business or or thinking about the teaching of the business where it's not like you have to learn all, all the parts equally. So you have the teaching part of it, but you only get to teach people if you have students coming in. And so you have to learn the business part of it. And so you have to invest in learning that part of it. And if you can just be a little bit more diligent than the other people's options that they have, then you'll be a good teacher. And, and actually really it not even about your local competition or the competition around the world. It's just about doing a really good job with good people. And, it, and if you can do a good job and learn what that means and do good marketing and learn what that means, because it's enough to say, Oh, this is good marketing. And everyone has an idea of what they think good business is a bit like the X factor where everyone kind of has an opinion on what a good singer is and what a good musician is. But you know like people don't really know you have to go study those things you have to invest in yourself you back yourself and then you'll find that when you start doing the principles and you start learning like things start clicking and they start coming together so I know it's a very long answer but the answer is yes I really do think people should back themselves to um to invest themselves and to learn and it doesn't mean that every single thing that they ever learn is going to come off and and happen right away but sometimes the like you can just get that magic piece of advice and it can be the difference of an extra 10 students over the next few months or year. And and when you're starting out, that's like life changing as well. So, yeah.
0: That's it. And just to add on to what you said there, like the momentum you get from, you know, getting a little bit further ahead is like that positive feedback loop. Once you get a little bit further ahead, you get 10 more students and then teaching those 10 students feeds into your experience And then you grow and you become better. And then that creates more momentum, more hype around you. And it just keeps on getting better and better. And you know, you hopefully become unstoppable. (laughs) And then yeah, whatever it is you put your mind to, you just get the advantage of all the knowledge you've accumulated. But speaking of, of all that, so when I look at you on Instagram, I see you're doing some really, really amazing things with your students and at your school. So can you tell us what you are doing at your studio to give that wow factor to your students, to your clients, and obviously everyone watching on social media?
1: That's a good question. Um, So I think about what we do as really the whole focus is trying to transcend the idea of of guitar lessons, because I don't think anyone really wants to buy guitar lessons. That's what they search for. But what people are, are kind of crying out for is a transformation uh, it's it's their story it, they are at some stuck point in it and they're looking for someone to help them overcome that point that they're at right now so what i really think about my role in that is trying to create an environment a culture a school community where it's normal it's like normalized for people to come in as a beginner and then a few years later record an album or release a song and it's hap- like last year we had like six students release songs and these are not like average songs <laughs> these were like really well produced and we had a couple of music videos come out and th- like these are students who started as complete beginners and so the focus of everything for us is like trying to find ways for them to grow uh, and we're just kind of the facilitators of that it's like oh and we're part of their journey and their musical career. And I think that for us, a lot of my students are adults. We have a lot of really good kid students too, but a lot of my students are adults. I think it's just part of the demographic of where we are as well in in London. But we have a lot of people who, you know, they had a dream to play as a kid and then, you know, life gets in the way. And now uh, they're ready to kind of really go for it again. And we get them playing in bands, we get them performing... Uh, and everything in between. So the the releasing a song that's kind of on the extreme end of uh, of what happens, but there's like it really is very normal that someone comes in and is playing in a band uh, within not very long of starting their instrument and then performing. And everything that we do is kind of designed around facilitating that to happen. It's like making the connections between band members, getting them to play, getting them to perform at their first gig helping them through that, helping them with song choice, getting them playing in time so they're kind of tight with when they play with a drummer, we get them playing with drummers too and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I, I feel like that's what makes us stand out is like we're not, we're not really selling guitar lessons. We're helping people who really want to actually do stuff with the guitar. So we're getting them out of that bedroom where they're confused on Fender Play or wherever the hell they're... <laughs> they're actually trying to learn from and we're going okay well you didn't start to play in your bedroom and what you started is because you saw someone at party play and you were like oh i wish i could do that and so we get it so they can do that or they they watched the kids through the window jamming at school and they were like 15 and now they're 35 and they still kind of just wish they could join in with that and now we get them playing and joining in not with 15 year old kids i'll admit but with other <laughs> other 35 year old or, or adults but um that that's what i see as our role and that's you know we just focus on the students we've got trying to give them the best transformation and experience for their guitar playing that we can
0: uh, that's absolutely amazing and I, I really love that bold statement of you know we're transcending guitar lessons and creating those amazing experiences and it obviously leads to to something so much better than the norm, which is come in for 30 minutes. Let's try and learn a song. Thanks very much. See you next week to creating this experience, which as you said, is you know shaping their lives and helping them tick off these goals and dreams, which they've always wanted to do. So that's absolutely amazing. Would you have any advice for other teachers looking to do more with their live performances with students and run showcases and events like the open mics that you guys are doing?
1: Yeah, I always think with every event that I've ever put on, I always wish I'd done it earlier because you have to suck at something. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, but I also think that musicians in general are perfectionists because it's kind of how we're taught to learn. We're taught that, oh, you have to nail things. And I remember whenever you do a gig as a musician, it's like every wrong note, most of the time, uh, you feel it really hard. Or if you've ever done graded exams or exams for music and you've received like a marking of your performance pretty demoralizing sometimes or it or it cannot be but if even if it isn't demoralizing and you've got a great mark too then that means that you you kind of went for perfection on everything and i'm not convinced of the healthiness of that in music uh, as a culture and that's one thing but in business especially and in your own learning just as a, a whole thing and, and that's the hard thing about this is obviously business is learning um and it's you that has to learn the important. Thing that has to happen is you have to gather data by learning. So I always think, like, if you're, if you feel like you're even on the cusp of being able to do one of those events or something, just do it. And that's the thing for me is like, we, what I found was whenever you start it, it's going to be kind of not very good for a while. And then it builds up with as you learn how to do it and how that event looks. So I remember, I think our first ever open mic had eight people. (laughs) Uh, show up and uh, like I mean eight people and I think a few of those performed and then I was like okay what we can do now guys so we uh we jammed and that was like one of our big big ones and and then now we've I mean we've had events we had like 150 people show up and 25 30 performers come for an open mic (laughs) where it's like I don't know who's coming and I'm just taking a list at the beginning going like right we've got three hours so we' better get started, and um, they sometimes overrun and then now I'm also doing these kind of uh, more evening ones. This is a new development, so this is where I'm doing something which is I'm learning again, so we've always done though for years, I think five years now I've done the Saturday ones, and that's where they get really busy. It's a weekend one where families come and it's really kind of cool and but now I've started doing these weekday evening ones, which are more regular they're they're every month, and at that. I mean, it's, sometimes it's quiet. We did one in Jan and I was like, wow, this is really quiet. And I, I fill the space. So I'm, I'm playing if there aren't enough performance because it's three hours of things. So it's a gig for me too. But that's one of those things where it's like, we've done three of those, four of them, and I'm just learning again. So I go, I, I tend to commit. If I think something's worth doing, I will tend, and I want to learn to do it. I will tend to commit for a minimum of two years to myself for doing it. If I, th- if I don't think it's worth doing, then I won't make that kind of commitment. But in this case, I go like, oh, I want a gig. I think this is a cool thing that students are going to get used to and use and we'll get more people coming to. Uh, but we've had, basically, we've had a couple of times where the whole room has been full of students wanting to watch, but only like three or four performers. So I'm ending up doing like an hour and a half of playing myself, which is great practice for me as well. Um, and just an opportunity to connect with students. And, and also we invite prospects down to come, uh, to come hang out and meet me and see what we're all about and meet our students and stuff. So
0: uh, It all sounds amazing. And you know, just pulling out the fact that you said when you want to give something a go and you believe in it, you actually commit two years to trying to implement it or make it happen or learn as much as you can. I think a lot of people can really learn from that because so many people give up way too early on the process. And if we as teachers are upset when our students quit after a very short amount of time, which we deem isn't long enough for them to have developed a reasonable amount of skill, then we too need to model the behavior that we want them to show by you know, committing to whatever it is. So I think that's something all the listeners can learn from there, Daryl. And obviously, it sounds like you've got this awesome community around your school, like 150 people come to an open mic night. That's just like, I don't think I've ever been to such a big open mic night. They're always in these like dingy little pubs with you know, like 30 people there and half the audience is just everyone's girlfriend or wife. So to get that many people is absolutely amazing. So yeah, how important is building a sense of community around your school? And and what have you done to facilitate that on top of what you've already mentioned with just having these gigs?
1: That's a good question. I think the community is is so important because it's like the feeling that everyone gets when they come into the school. It's the vibe. It's more than just this, the the teachers and the staff. The community is like, like obviously, your marketing can it, it tells people like is this good, and they get to make an assessment decision. But when people kind of start or they come in, that community is the do I want to stay? Is this something I identify and do I want to be part of? And so I I I think that I mean this is why I have a a lot of thoughts about. I absolutely think competition exists in in the world between industries, and I do think obviously there's. I think it's so elastic in terms of like how you don't have to worry about your competition because all you have to do is focus on being you and being the best you that you can and your school being the best school that it can. And you will attract people who are like that. I think that it basically anything you can um, do to build that community is so important. And the people that are going to be in that community, uh, I think my clients, some of them become like my best, best friends, honestly. Like we had, uh, we have, some clients have been with us for a few years. We have them around for dinner. And they're a lot of those students, when they, the new ones come in, they're like looking around, talking to other people in that community. And so anything you can do to build that community vibe is, um, is so helpful. One of the things that I got when I had my first job at someone else's music school was like, it was like day one, my job was like, it was mad. My job was doing everything at the time, but it was so stressful. But it was basically taking all payments, which were every five or ten sessions or something, and had to be done by cash or card. There were half an hour lessons, so it was like every half an hour taking those payments, making teas for every single person that came into the room, and also there was two floors of retail that I was running at the same time, and dealing with often if a teacher hadn't shown up for lessons, i ended up taking their day of schedule and and genuinely trying to do those things at once. So sometimes i would be trying to teach a lesson and sell a guitar upstairs at the same time, which was insane. But the thing that was like highest priority of all of those in their minds was the making teas for parents and customers. That was the most important thing of all. And I just didn't get it originally. And then I, I did get it. I was like, oh, so because in this case, the parents of the customer. They're sat in the waiting room, the kids in the lesson, and they want to have a nice time while they're here and they're going to sit and chat and have uh, a bit of community. And so that was that, like, I remember that being like a little bit of a spark in my head. I was like, oh, if you've got kids, like the parents, the customer, because they're the one actually buying. And so we need to take care of them. And so probably the simplest thing to to ever do is to free teas, coffees, drinks um, for those parents is like an absolute must. And then making it like a thing where you, you know, everyone goes out and has a coffee between lessons, or we, we like, we hang out and we have a chat and we have a tea. And I know that's very British where it's like, everyone bonds over hot drinks in this country, but you got to find some way, like you need those water cooler. This is a water cooler moment, a thing in Australia, a water cooler moments, like in the office where everyone goes to the water cooler and they're like chatting about something. from there. But You need those like interactions between yourself and customers. And you need to like your, I mean, you need to like your customers, frankly, if you don't, then that's a problem. But yeah, you need those like chatty, hey, how you doing? Hanging out type things. I think that that builds community more than probably anything else. And then the other thing is, is events. Like you need events where people are coming along to hang out and not just take a guitar lesson, whether that's a jam session, whether that's, we used to do a board game night pre COVID. Like we used to do a once a month or once every few months, we do a board game night. And, um, it's not everyone that comes, but there's a whole bunch of people that come and they're like, it's just so much fun. It's just a chance to hang out. We used to do Mario Kart night. That was another one. I haven't done that <laughs> in a few years. Mario and, and karaoke night. It's just, you know, like things like that.
0: Yeah. Things like that are really, really important for kids and adults. And I have to say, like, it's the most British thing ever talking, hearing you talk about just getting everyone tea and helping them bond most definitely. But yeah, it, it couldn't be truer. And Things like I know we've done bowling nights and we're always talking about like, yeah, doing like a, a Minecraft night or something, teachers versus students. We have a lot of kids who love playing that sort of stuff. Um, uh, I'll say a funny story about Minecraft for another podcast, but <laughs> it sounds like you have got some really, really cool stuff going on there. And if I could just add one thing, I think the most important the well, most expensive chairs you should have in your studio are for the waiting area where your parents are going to be sitting. So you definitely want to take care of them. If they're going to be sitting around for an hour, you want to make sure they're on good chairs and just in an, in an environment conducive to you know, long-term retention and having a great time. And as you said, you know, the parents are the customers at the end of the day, not necessarily just the kids. Now, when I, f- I don't know if it was first met you, but early on, I remember seeing you give a presentation on something called deep practice. And so many guitar teachers, I think, have this fault of they just tell their students what to practice and never show them how to practice. And it's just, yeah, do that more, do that more, do that more. But unless they're actually showing them what to do and how to make improvements, then they're only just reinforcing the problem that they already have even stronger. Can you tell us more about deep practice and you know, how you've used it in your own playing and, and how you use it with your students?
1: Deep practice is uh, fascinating. And it's also so I think everyone's heard of the or, or now everyone's kind of heard of that 10,000 hour rule and a little bit of history on the 10,000 hour rule. It's not a rule that was coined by Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers, which is kind of where it was made famous. And that was it was no, no slight on Malcolm Gladwell; He's got some amazing books. Um, but according to the guy who we pulled that study from, it's a little bit contentious to call it the 10,000 hour rule. Um, it's just a nice round number that everyone likes to kind of talk about. And he, so he, it was kind of journalistic, um, is what I'm saying, the 10,000-hour rule. But what's interesting about it is it's made it famous. And the guy who did that study called Anders Ericsson is the person who actually studied all these musicians and kind of looked at... And basically the thing was it, he he plucked out that, you know, on average, really, really high level people who go on to be master musicians, had, I think by the age of 21, done 10,000 hours. But the contention is by the age of 18, they'd done something like 6,000 hours or 7,000 hours. I mean, he's like, why didn't you choose that number? Um, or, and then the important point is they never stop. It's not like 10,000 hours and done. And that's kind of the way that it's always been used. Is well, how am I going to get my 10,000 hours? And so that's, that's where the beginnings of people looking into, well, what kind of work they're doing? It's not 10,000 hours of just work. It's 10,000 hours of what kind of practice and that kind of practice, the way that it looks is it tends to be for those people in that study with the outcomes that they had, where they were, you know, and these were these, I think these were conservatory um, musicians from memory was that they were doing on average about four hours a day of practice, which is less than people normally expect. The bit that no one ever talks about is they were doing eight, they were all having eight hours of sleep every night. And that's really important. That's probably as, as or more important than the four hours because their brains were being able to recover from the, pra- the type of practice they did. The type of practice they did was quite uncomfortable. And it's called. it's been coined as deep practice. It's been called the ugly zone. In traditional music education, this isn't new. This is a thing that my mum, I remember when she was learning about teaching, they used to call the, I think it was the zone of proximal learning as you know, in formal education, everything needs a, an enormous name that no one can understand. Um, I like the ugly zone the most, I think. But it's talking of the quality of that practice and that the point that it was making, the point that deep practice is talked about. And there's, there's infinite books. And so every talent book that you look at now will now talk about deep practice. Cal Newport has done a spin on it for a book called Deep Work. Everyone's like deep everything. And basically what it is, It's doing challenging things with a specific goal to move your playing from one area to the other. So in my own practice, obviously as a musician, if you want to improve, it's the absolute gold standard of being able to practice and improve on your instrument. And it's why people tend to get stuck in ruts of playing and not practicing. So deep practice normally takes the form of having a specific outcome that you're looking for, a specific strategy to practice it, and it's normally with a coach. It's normally with someone telling you what to do. So even when someone, it, it can be that sometimes you can get this on your own, but normally you need someone to literally sit with you and go, this is what you're doing, even the experts. So this is like top athletes, everyone doing it, and especially the experts, of course. It's like, here's the specific how you come, here's what you're going to do to do the work. And then here's the strategies we're going to apply. And the important part about deep practice is we're trying to build and as a teacher, you're trying to help the student, and as a, a, a person doing, you're trying to build mental structures in your head that uh, towards the goal that you're heading towards. So, someone who's really, really good at doing something has this whole mental structure that's built up in their head. And when you see like virtuoso musicians talk about stuff, sometimes it sounds completely insane, the words they're saying. But to them, it makes perfect sense because it comes from a mental structure that they have. So, you know, when you see them and they're like, oh yeah. And then, you you know, and this has, these two notes have a kind of nutty feel. I'm joking, but they do something and they it's all this mental structure they built in their head of like how these things sound, how they feel to them, how it makes sense. And to them it makes perfect sense. And you hear them play and you're like, wow, that's cool. And people are like, wow, I'm going to search for the nutty feel. And it's like, that's like describing the spire on top of their mental structure. When it's like, you maybe are working on foundations right now, or we need to talk about how the concrete goes together and stuff like that and so this is where sometimes people are really good players and not good teachers but what we're looking for is mental models and with students when we're trying to help them we're trying to help students build mental models that they can work towards and then we're trying to help them get comfortable with actually doing the difficult work of working on that stuff So that's my theory on deep practice. Whether deep practice is what you should immediately be doing with any of your students, I think it's a different matter. I think that deep practice is like a luxury when you first got people and the first thing they need to do is build a habit of just picking up the guitar and falling in love with the instrument. But then deep practice is how we, we make that transformation become real. It's how you get people to really... Uh, get good. And so, uh, I, I mean, I'm not a virtuoso musician. Uh, I, I, by no means do I think I'm one of these master players. I think I'm getting better and I'm, I'm a really good musician, but especially for anyone that I'm helping, I think I can have a really big impact with their playing with micro amounts of getting this deep practice. in. if they can do 20, 30 minutes of deep practice a day, that's transformative for them and it gets them playing in bands, gets them having the experiences that they really want quite quickly uh, as compared to if they were, you know, on Fender play or something. Not that I'm hating on Fender. I have Fender guitars all around me here, um, but you know,
0: Yeah. And there's obviously just this huge component of practicing and a lack of awareness around it, which you know, beginner students, there's just such a wealth of resources out there right now. You know anyone on YouTube can become a teacher if they have a camera. With the whole COVID thing happening, a whole bunch of people who are great players just all of a sudden became teachers out of necessity. It's really hard for the uneducated um, student to really you know know where the good material source stuff is coming from. So I found that there is such a huge lack of, um, or the students just have such confusion about you know what is good, what is bad, and just and pick up weights that are essentially too heavy for them it's like they go to the gym on their first day and try and bench press 100 kilos by doing songs with bar chords and things like that and that's leading into this idea of you've got this really structured form of practice and it's just so different to what everyone expects or thinks about did you find from experience that if you tried too early on you were scaring students off or you know coming too hard too early in the process
1: it's a good question i don't have any memory of that happening to as like a specific memory now but I think yes is the answer but that's part of my journey as a teacher it's like I uh you have to get better and and so I now I think I'm a really good teacher I like of guitar and of some other things but of, of guitar specifically I think I'm a really good teacher but uh, there was a time where I, I I was learning and I'm still learning obviously but especially I think i I kind of put things on a bit too thick and heavy at the beginning, and also I made the mistake in the beginning of expecting that my aspirations and goals should become their aspirations and goals, and so you know, if I want to do four hours of deep practice a day and get really, really good guitar or or have these experiences uh playing professionally and touring, I would make the mistake uh, now I think it's quite naive of thinking my students should have those same goals and that that's what they want to do. And that it's, it's just not the case. There are students who are like that and and do want to do those things, but, and there's other people who, who might deep down really want to do those things, but you have to meet them where they're at because they might not believe any of that's possible. So you have with students, you have this kind of, you have to help them believe what's possible. You have to also help them believe in you. Right. And so you can't come on too, like, if you come on a bit too strong at the beginning, you just sound crazy. Like in week one, there's very rarely, unless someone was already really like far along in lots of ways. Might I tell someone about deep practice on week one of their playing, but it, it, most of the time it's just not even relevant at that point. They have to, they have to believe in kind of themselves. Um, and they have to believe in us, Uh, And what we're doing with them in order for them to kind of grow in confidence and the more confidence you have and the more motivation you have, the easier it is to do deep practice. The thing about hard things is that in order to do hard things regularly, your motivation and ability have to be quite high. So in the beginning, if they don't have a lot of ability, we, we shouldn't really be forcing them to do that much deep practice because we're trying to just get them to to get into the process and fall in love with the instrument like uh, like the rest of us have so
0: yeah there's some really great points you you brought up something i noticed you know in my own early days of teaching was i'd learn all these really cool ideas and you know explore deep practice and similar concepts and that was like the coolest thing in the world to me but you tell your students yeah four hours of practice and you know they'd run the other way they just it wasn't realistic for them and it's having that realization that yeah not everyone is here to become a Shred Lord or not everyone wants to become a virtuoso. Some people just want to sit around the campfire and play acoustic songs. So matching your approach with each individual student. So it helps them get to their goal, not necessarily your goal for them is, was an important realization for me to come to and something that since correcting and knowing when to put your foot down on the accelerator with certain students and when to take the scenic route rather than the fast lane has been really, really important for my retention and the enjoyment of our students. But segueing on to another topic, um, which I'd heard you talk about previously as well, and probably slightly related to deep practice, is this idea of visualization, something that we often hear with sports uh, and high-level athletes. How has that come into your practice and, and use with students and musicians?
1: I'm so passionate about visualization. I think it's like the shortcut for everything. But the reason I'm so passionate about it is because it used to make me so angry, visualization, because it's in every business book ever. It's in every, every like, uh, secrets of how to do this kind of thing. It's like, I think it went through this, especially like the last 10 years, it's gone through this like internet marketing cycle of being like the secret that is this. And like, there's these little, these little mechanisms like that that just go through cycles of being like everyone's using it for every program ever and this is the secret of how you do it and it, tony robbins famously used it for a long time and so i think visualization is amazing um i think it's just it becomes a little bit like noise to people and the problem is i think that uh, there's some caveats to it so there's important things about visualization is that one what is it and two how do you do it? So I think when people hear visualization, what they think is having a picture in your mind and there's the theater of the mind and there's all these different uh, topics that have come up over the year. And the theater of the mind is uh, from this 1960s book called psycho which is really famous and has been uh, ripped off in lots of other instances ever since then. But basically, the, there's a problem with it. And it, I think it's the thing with a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. And also the, the annoying thing is that for a lot of people that works and for a lot of people, it doesn't work. So I have gone really deep into this because I discovered that one of my teachers when I was doing visualization stuff with him, and I've always struggled a little bit with visualization. I always did. Um, but I, I have a teacher who cannot visualize at all, cannot see things in their inner mind. It's, it's a thing called effantasia where you literally, there is no image in the head. Like you, you know, the person you were just speaking to intellectually, you can say they were wearing yellow trousers and that's weird, yellow trousers, but let's say they were wearing yellow. You know, they were wearing yellow trousers and a red top, but you cannot picture the yellow trousers and the red top. And then interesting, I have another teacher who has the opposite, like all the other way on the end of the spectrum, where like, if you start talking in images to them, they're gone, they're there in the movie and they can see them and like almost touch them. And so visualization, especially images, is on a spectrum in people's heads. And it's, I would say it's not fixed but it's a sliding scale of there's only so much like this person is never going to picture like this and they can improve it a little bit. And this person can probably move a little bit back and forwards as to how strong their visualizations are, but there's like people's brains do work differently. So, and what I think is most visualization topics just deal with a picture in your mind. Like they, they, instead of talking about how to visualize, they tell you to visualize. And I think that's a mistake because it's actually a surprisingly large percent of the population who aren't necessarily unable to visualize. So this is quite extreme, but it's, it's more than you think. Like it's, <laughs> if you start searching on YouTube for effantasia, it's really common. Like it's much more common than you think. And this is why, where visualization loses a lot of people, I think. So I think what needs, the, the important thing that people need to know is you need to be able to understand what are the different parts of visualization. And so I think in music, and this is where my strength is obviously, is we have three things. We have see, hear, feel. If you think about the goal of when you can play something really, really well, if you've done any gigs ever, and especially if you're a guitar player and you haven't been able to hear your guitar, you know, if you've prepped well enough and you can't hear your guitar, you should know whether, what you're playing sounds good because you know your equipment well enough and you know where the frets feel like, whether you can hear your guitar or not, you just feel where the frets are. So I've done, I remember I did a gig on bass. We, we headlined a, a festival, um, when I was like 15, 16, it was a little festival. It was like three, 4,000 people. And I couldn't hear my bass. There was no sound coming from my bass. And then stage crew went crazy with dry ice and I couldn't see my bass. I could not see my bass. I could not hear my bass. All I could do was feel the frets. And it wasn't like a, like, it, this wasn't like a, oh, I just need to look down. You know, sometimes you're looking away and you look down or it's dark and it's like you I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. There was nothing. It was so much dry ice that I couldn't see a thing. And so you have to be able to feel what it's like. So that's the end goal is like being able to do things. And I think a good analogy for what the end of visualization, the goal we're kind of looking for with music, is if you've ever been to the circus and you've seen a tightrope walker walking at like 100 meters up, they're walking along that tightrope and they're so relaxed, they're smiling. They're just chill. They could have a conversation with you while they're doing it because it's so automatic and they know exactly where everything feels like. And I feel like in music, we don't often practice to that level and we don't expect that it's going to be effortless when we get there because it needs to be effortless. But if you were like... If your life was in your hands up 100 meters that that is how you would practice (laughs) you would you would be doing things until they feel effortless in in what you're doing you'd have that feeling back so i always think taking people through those three things is the important thing so can we move people from see to hear only and know whether it's correct when they're working in visualization so An example of how this can work. And so this this is an exercise I think that kind of works for everyone, regardless of where they are on that spectrum. And I call it play. It's like one for one visualize play. And so whatever the exercise you're working on is, normally if you're working on something where it's complex, it should be a loop of no more than four or five seconds for us to really uh, be able to be working on it and working stuff out. And you do one visualize, one play. And that visualize remember is it's a complex, it's like a mental structure of what it looks like, what it sounds like and what it feels like. And so for the people who are not able to do what it looks like in their head, they can do what it sounds like normally. Otherwise they probably wouldn't be doing music and they can certainly do what it feels like. So it's not like because someone can't visualize that it's very unlikely They wouldn't be able to imagine feelings and stuff like, of course they have feelings. I mean, that'd be very strange. And so knowing that we're taking it through those three things, you begin to get people really doing it. And so it'll be like, they'll play at beginners. It's like, okay, we're going to play three chords or your four chords or your two chords that you're working on. And you're going to play through them once. And then we're going to just take a few seconds to pause here and imagine how it should have been so where should those fingers have gone and then we're going to go again and so it's like one for one back to back with the visualization and i find that loop works amazing well like i find people having breakthroughs in five minutes that they haven't done in the last like 10 sessions it's just getting people to a point where they're willing to do that because it seems insane and the the only challenge with it is, is you never know whether someone's doing it correctly you never know whether someone's really visualizing or whether they're just pausing for a few seconds The only control you have as a teacher is going, well, you're going to stop for five seconds between every one. And I'm never going to know. But you could just sit there and humor me, or you could do the visualization. The truth is, either way, you're getting better because either way, you're now going in cold to each round, which is a higher quality of practice because when we just do these endless loops of practicing, we're not really getting good at doing the thing that first time well and relaxed we're just going in we're, we're getting good at doing a loop and so it i think the one for one type way of practicing visualize play visualize play is the best thing to reach every single person with visualization in music that i i've ever done and i i didn't get this one from anywhere it's kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of things but i i um I'm now calling it the Daryl Powers method now, not really, but, uh, basically I, I think it really works well and it really helps a lot of people. So,
0: wow. There's like totally amazing stuff there for all the listeners to, uh, to go and explore. Uh, would you have any recommendations for like books or, or resources for anyone that does want to follow up on this visualization thing?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. So the talent code is a great book. My dad gave me the talent code, weirdly enough, just, uh, uh, was like, oh, I read this a while ago and gave it to me. And I, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dad. And um, I was like, oh, this is insane. And then um, there's there's a kind of a recent book that was written by Anders Ericsson, the guy who did the study, which is called Peak, which I think is awesome. A really fantastic book. And it's nice to, like, he's been kind of described by everyone else, all these people writing the books. And it's so cool to like have a book where the guy who did the study is actually talking about it and talking about the the things that it's like a phenomenal book. And then another really good one that's really old. It's a little bit different and it doesn't talk about, it's nothing to do with deep practice, but it's, it's like a famous old one and it's called Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. And that's like a classic, it came out in 1996. And it's kind of, uh, aim towards jazz musicians a bit, but it's, um, it's wicked. It's like the example of the tightrope walker comes, comes from that book. And he uses this great example of how your, your instrument should be like as simple as using a fork to eat with. Like if a famous person walks in while you're eating dinner, you don't drop your fork. But if a famous person walks in while you were playing a guitar solo, like, would you, mess up that guitar solo or would you play differently and be thinking about them and it's like well probably yeah so i think that's a really good it's kind of pre pre the studies so pre in area which is the the kind of science backing this deep practice stuff so i would say almost effortless mastery is sort of a juxtaposition against it but i don't i, I don't think they're contradictory i think they're just uh, written at different times and there's great things to learn from each of those books
0: so fantastic so anyone listening can check out those books there Daryl we are coming to the end of our time here I just wanted to you know talk about some of the other things that you're doing so I know you've got a new YouTube channel and you've been sort of transitioning into the online space what kind of sets your channel apart that you're you know you're working on and putting out to the world there
1: Well so I, I've started the YouTube channel uh, I have been uh, working on my Daryl Powers YouTube channel which, really what i'm doing is i'm i'm putting myself out there as a teacher specifically of fretboard knowledge so one of the things that i'm really passionate about and really good at because it was an obsession for me because i think it annoyed me is visualization and so fretboard visualization is like my thing i struggled with knowing my guitar fretboard really well and for a long time like when i was doing those gigs the reason, the reason I would learn everyone's songs so well and the reason I spend so much time practicing is because I did not know my notes on the guitar at all. And so I was doing everything by ear, by working out by ear, by listening, slowing things down and then learning things rote. And it meant that I had to know things really well because obviously like when you're doing a gig, the difference between is the next chord on fret three or fret four, that's not a very easy question to answer in the moment, unless you know the song really, really well, but is it a C or a C sharp coming next? Well, that's dramatically different based on the key you're in. And so when I, when I got into visualization, I went, I went deep with visualization. And it's one of the big things that I do for my students now, like the big transformation that I have is I realized this is really common for a lot of guitar players. We learn songs, we get good at songs, we want to jam songs. And so my big passion is fretboard visualization. It's being able to understand that fretboard and picture it when you're playing the guitar, because I always learned theory on the piano for all my, like I understood piano, I understood music theory. I could, I passed music theory exams many times as a kid. I could read music, but that didn't make me a better guitar player. And so probably my most passionate thing is being able to do, think on guitar, imagine guitar, see, hear, feel guitar. As you're doing it and have it really kind of resonate through understanding chord structures and any theory like that and so my big thing for my youtube channel is i want to teach people how to do that and kind of impart that same knowledge that i have done with my students and i've done for myself and help other people to to have that same transformation experience
0: fantastic and you know i've checked out a few of daryl's videos and they're all extremely helpful and Again, you know, I'm quite far along in my guitar playing journey and there's still some amazing stuff to be learned. So it doesn't matter where you are, whether you're a total beginner, whether you're really far down the track, he's got some amazing stuff. So definitely check it out. Where can everyone follow you in terms of Instagram and your YouTube channel? Just give yourself a bit of a shout out. So
1: on YouTube, I'm I'm slash Daryl Powis, D-A-R-R-Y-L-P-O-W-I-S. And then the same on Instagram. And on Instagram, I, I share a lot. I tend to share quite a lot of behind the scenes of what we're doing at the school, especially in the stories. So my Instagram channel, the pictures are, you know, I update that every now and then, but in the stories, I tend to show what we're doing behind the scenes and picture of events and stuff. So if you're interested in seeing that stuff, then uh, follow me on there and, and say hi. Yeah. Send me a message and say hi. I listen to you on here and all that stuff.
0: Fantastic. So Daryl, I've got one final question for you before we wrap it up here today. If you could in impart one final piece of wisdom upon the guitarists and music teachers listening to this, what would that be?
1: Keep going. You'll get better. I really think if it's worth doing, it's uh, it's worth backing yourself to do and get better over the long period. And so it gets easier. I remember times freaking out about what I was going to teach or spending all day planning lessons, trying to work it out. And you just you will learn, you will get better remember times where we struggled for money we were struggling to get students. in. I remember we once had, we had times where we went from having like 20 people contact us the month to having two people contact us the next month and all these nightmares. And so really the only thing that will help you in the long term is sticking at it because, um, that's the big thing about when you hear the stats of businesses failing, you hear like, I can't remember. I never remember what they are because I always think they're really negative, but it's like, you know, uh, one in five make it past x many years and then of those that make it only one in 10 prevail or something and what you've got to remember is a lot of that is one people just giving up to it's, i mean it's it's not it's sometimes it's people were over themselves or they, they did silly things but a lot of the time it's just people throwing the towel in because they can't be bothered to back themselves anymore and so this is a great great thing to do because you're you're getting to do something with music which is awesome but also just accept that it's going to be over the long term and if you back yourself over the long term there's a space for you there's a space for you in the industry uh you just you just have to keep working hard and keep doing it so good luck
0: ladies and gentlemen there's some fantastic there fantastic advice there from daryl daryl thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the top music guitar podcast you've shared some amazing wisdom and some amazing insights into your teaching and you've got just such a wealth of knowledge so thank you for joining us and you know we'll look forward to until next time whenever that is thanks michael all right thank you guys have a great time wherever you are in the world and we'll see you in the next episode of the top music guitar podcast thanks for listening if you enjoy this show and want to hear more of our work be sure to subscribe to this podcast for links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a free ebook on how to find more guitar students, visit us at www.topmusic.co/slash guitar or check out the show notes. And lastly, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.